Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. We're going to start our reading from God's Word, John chapter 13. Just a couple short verses um, that I'm going to read. It might be just as well to follow them on the screen. So um, stand if you're willing and able. Give our attention now to the Word of God. Listen to what uh, it says in John, the 13th chapter, the first verse. Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. In other words, Jesus has come to the Passover knowing that he'll be executed in Jerusalem. This is what it says. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now look at John chapter 15, verse 13. Again, just one verse. Jesus says, greater love hath no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then still reading in the Gospel of John, the 10th chapter, Jesus still speaking, the 11th verse. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This then is the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inspired word. The grass withers. Have you been outside? (laughs) The grass withers. The flower fades. Nothing in this world is permanent, right? Except the word of God. It stands forever. Amen. Be seated, please. So we're talking about the cost of love. Because we love love. uh, We are smitten by... um, Love. We like um, chocolates and roses and champagne and candlelight dinners and, and building a fire on the beach and sitting around it as the sun goes down and holding hands and going on dates and date night and Valentine's Day and romantic cards and Harry Met Sally and uh, You Got Mail and Um, We love um, surprise engagements with the photographer and the family hiding as uh, as the future groom gets on his knees and and, and pulls out the fake diamond. And um, we we love storybook um, weddings. We love love. But in truth, love is not that glamorous. Love is costly. To choose to love, I've never seen this on a Hallmark card. To choose to love is to choose to die. Um, 
Greater love hath no man than this, than that a man lay down um, his life. So somebody actually uh, sent me this um, um, trailer for a, a documentary that hasn't actually been um, released, the, the documentary yet. But, but I'm just going to show you a little clip from uh, a trailer uh, about a love affair. It's a love affair that the people of Normandy in France have for um, our own country. The, the, the documentary is called The Girl Who Wore Freedom. As Americans, we probably know more about World War II than any other war in our history. We've listened to the speeches. We've watched the movies. We've heard stories from the soldiers who risked their lives to defend the freedom of countries thousands of miles away. We may have heard of D-Day, but we have not heard the stories of the men, women, and children liberated from enemy forces that day. For the citizens of Normandy, D-Day is more than a date in a history book or archival footage on a movie screen. D-Day means liberation. D-Day is freedom. My name is Daniel Patricks. One year after being liberated from German control, I found myself standing in a ceremony on Utah Beach, wearing a new dress sewn by my mother Cecile. It was made from parachutes of the soldiers who fought valiantly to liberate me, my family, my neighbors and all of France from Hitler's terrible grasp. Memories of war and liberation have been passed down from one generation to the next to thank and honor their liberators. Les cimetières, il y a eu tant de morts pour hein, pour sauver la la France et les tous les pays qui étaient occupés par l'Allemagne. Où qu'on serait aujourd'hui, nous Français, si vous les Américains vous n'étiez pas venus. That some boys and in some cases kids uh, went ashore on our beaches to fight in a hell to liberate people they even didn't know. And when you realize it, and you realize that you are free, that you can use your language, continue to maintain your traditions, then you realize what they have done and the sacrifice that many of them have made. So the people in Normandy um, know that a great sacrifice was made and they have no intention of forgetting and they remember that sacrifice the sacrifice of love, the cost of love. Love costs something. And they remember it because there's museums and there's monuments and there's parades. Just next week on, on July 6th, the 77th uh, anniversary of D-Day, there'll be parades throughout the communities there to remember. And if all of that isn't enough to remember, they have 9,400 bodies buried in their backyard, right? And the cemeteries themselves stand as testimony uh, to just how costly um, love is. So God's people have um, a, a monument, right? God's people, liberated by a dramatic invasion 2,000 years ago, do not forget the cost of love either. For two millennium, God's people have gathered, sometimes every day, sometimes every week, every month, but steadily for 2,000 years, God's people have gathered to hear these words, right? This is my body, broken for you. 
This is my blood spilled for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So what is this great cost? The cost of love. Love is not sentimental, uh, sickly sweet. Um, Love is hard. It's difficult. It demands a great price. For us to be in this place, in the family of God, required a terrible price. Only one could pay it, and he did, and we remember. Ready? Got a sermon outline? Two delicious points to the sermon. Love, the cost of love. The first is is that love uh, entails experiencing rejection. If you love, you'll experience rejection. C.S. Lewis said it, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. Love is, um, is um, painful, uh, and a part of that pain will be rejection. Jesus experienced rejection and betrayal. He was no stranger um, to it. He came to liberate, and yet um, he was not received. He came unto his own, the scripture said, but his own received him not. Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected. He was despised and rejected uh, by men. Jesus was rejected from his birth, right? From his very birth, uh, the, uh, Herod, the king of the Jews, uh, seeks to kill him. And uh, Jesus becomes a fleeing um, refugee from his own people and his own country. We don't often think of Jesus like that. We, we forget that he spent the first years of his life in Egypt, right? He was in exile. He was a refugee. He was hunted, um, rejected right from the start. Jesus was rejected by his own family at points, right? Jesus was um, rejected by the Jewish leadership uh, of uh, Israel who detested him, who, um, well, you know, before I even get to that, Jesus was rejected. Remember when he went to his hometown to preach in Nazareth in the synagogue? Um, I mean, that, for somebody who's, you know, clergy, that's like a big moment to get invited back to the church where you were um, uh, little, where you grew up, and they would invite you back, and now you come as an adult. I got invited. I've never gone back to the churches I grew up in um, and been asked to preach. Um, they know too much about me. And um, uh, I remember when I meet people from my childhood, they often say to me, you're a preacher? Who would have ever imagined? Um, Jesus goes back to his hometown and he's in Nazareth and um, uh, he, he, uh, he, he requests a scroll from Isaiah. The, the scroll is before him. He reads a passage from the prophet Isaiah and, uh, and the people, there's a buzz in the crowd and the people sort of start to say, this is Joseph's son? Look at this. We remember him when he was a little runt, right? This is Joseph's son. Isn't this awesome? He's come back. This is glorious. But then Jesus actually applied what he read to the people. And what he said was that um, God was more enamored with the Gentiles than he was with, the, with uh, his own people because they had greater faith than um, than the Jews did. And with that, um, Jesus' warm welcome came to an abrupt end. And the passage, if you're familiar with it, 
uh, if you look at the end, verse 29, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. That's the, you know, so if my home church invites me, I'm not going. Um, <laughs> Jesus was rejected, right? Rejected by his uh, own people. Um, rejected from birth. Rejected by the people he grew up with. His own hometown, you'd think, would take the greatest pride in him. And then Jesus was certainly rejected by the religious leaders whose plot to put him to death. He's surrounded. Uh, they can't capture him, though, because he's surrounded by throngs of people in daylight. They can't have their way, the religious leaders. I was reading the Bible the other day and, and, and uh, came across a thing I don't think I, I remembered that uh, when Jesus healed Lazarus, the religious leaders decided to do what? Kill Lazarus. They actually had a plot to kill Lazarus. It wasn't just to kill Jesus, kill the evidence of, uh, of, of Jesus' impact and his deity. Um, they wanted to kill Jesus. They were plotting, they were conniving, they were trying to trap him, but they couldn't um, uh, get to him because uh, in the day he was surrounded by crowds, in the evening he would um, slip away. Um, he was hidden. Um, so to get him required what? They had to have inside information, right? They had to turn one of the people who were very closest to Jesus. They had to get somebody in his inner circle to betray him. And we know that's exactly what happened, right? So you talk about painful. When somebody in your inner circle betrays you, right? I mean, as a pastor, I've often thought, you know, the community could not like what I do. And that's okay. I have the support of the church. Well, theoretically. And, um, the, you know, the support of the the church, and then I think, well, you know, if even the church was uh, hostile, I have the support of the, the leadership and the elders and the deacons, and, and even if there was a problem there, then, then, the, then the pastors would um, stand with me and the staff that I work with. And even if there was a problem there, you know, when it ultimately comes down to, I would have my wife. If I have my wife, I always felt like I could bear up uh, under anything else. But, it, you know, it works the other way around too, Right? If somebody turns against you from way out there, I, I mean, it, it's, it's not pleasant, but that's one thing. But what, if, but what if it was my wife? What if it was the people I love the most to work with together um, every day? So Jesus had the 12. They traveled together. They learned together. They, they uh, experienced hardship together. They saw the glory of God fall down in these incredible uh, miracles, right? This was one of his guys Three years, they slept on the ground together. They, um, they did life together. He was in the inner circle. Love, if you love, you'll experience rejection and Jesus experiences it right at the core. So Judas gets angry. Judas, you know, was the treasurer. What does that imply? Who do you let handle the money? Somebody that you perhaps trust the very most. And, um, and Jesus, uh, Judas turns on um, Jesus. You can only imagine the pain. At the Last Supper, um, John tells us that Jesus was deeply troubled in his spirit as he told the 12, one of you will what? One of you will betray me. Jesus is wounded by this. Can I, can, can I just say, I know some of you have known the pain of rejection. You've told me that. I don't know what's more painful. It could be the rejection of a spouse, the betrayal of a spouse. Perhaps it's, it's of a parent. 
I know people whose mothers abandoned them and they've never gotten over it. It could have been the rejection of your child, right? It's a deep, these are deep wounds. Maybe, maybe you're still scarred by a, an employer um, or even a church where you were rejected. Can I say to you, if, you, if you've really experienced the pain of that, can I say to you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry because these wounds are so deep. Perhaps you need healing in a way that only God can bring it for the pain of rejection. It's fascinating. Um, um, our response toward rejection usually runs toward what? Self-pity, um, self-righteousness, bitterness, anger, and hatred. And yet it's interesting to watch Jesus' response. He came unto his own. He came to lay down his life. He came to be a sacrificial surgeon. And what did he find? The creator of the universe came in love and he's rejected. And what's Jesus' response? It's lament. It's lament. It's not anger. It's lament. It's deep sorrow. It's not sorrow over what he's suffering. It's sorrow over what those who are rejecting him are losing. It's sorrow for people. It's sorrow for others. It's fascinating love, isn't it? Look at what it says in, um, in Luke 13. Jesus standing over the city of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And yet you were not what? You were not willing. Can you hear the pathos in that? You were not willing. And um, Jesus says, like a hen, like a hen that would gather the little chicks. A fire could come and the hen would gather the chicks underneath. The, the, the hen would give up her, uh, her own life, but the little ones would be saved. Jesus said, that's the way I feel about you, but you would not have me. And then as Jesus approaches Jerusalem for the last time, coming down from the Mount of Olives, look at what uh, it says in Luke chapter 19. When he drew near the city, he wept over it. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. And he foretells the Roman destruction that is gonna come when the city of Jerusalem will be utterly leveled and destroyed just a few years in the future Jesus, it says, he wept over the city as he's being cheered. This is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the last time he comes. This joyous scene we often picture begins with Jesus what? And you know, scholars say that this doesn't mean he had a little tear in his eye that trickled down his cheek, that Jesus wailed. This is like a deep welling up of sorrow. Have you ever wailed? Have you ever been in such pain that, uh, that, that, that it's, not a, it's, it's not a little sob with a dabbing of the, the tissue to the eyes? It is a full-bodied um, wailing. Jesus experiences, I, I suppose that whatever your experience of rejection is, as painful as it is, it is not even close to what Jesus experienced in creating us and having us hate him. 
Um, Jesus is um, sad, um, but it doesn't devolve into self-pity or anger. He weeps, but he doesn't hate. He continues to love. Love hurts, love is hard. To love is to suffer. Jesus loves anyway, right? What happens when they come to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane? Do you know the Bible says what he does first? He gets between those who are arresting and, and his apostles, his students, his friends. He says, you came for me, let them go. First thought is what? Not protect himself, it's protect them. And then when Simon, uh, when Peter takes his sword and lashes out, right, at the, at the servant of the high priest uh, and cuts his ear, uh, Jesus heals him, right? Put the sword away. We might have been tempted to say, yeah, yeah, now we're talking, right? Let's throw down. Um, this, this is going to be like West Side Story right here. Um, Jesus loves. Um, Jesus pays the price of, uh, of love. Love is hard, given every opportunity for anger and bitterness. Love anyway. Her name is Loretta Ross. I read this story this week that um, Loretta was um, sort of a civil rights uh, pioneer. She was devoted to um, fighting racism. And uh, in, in rural Tennessee in 1993, she was asked by a group of women whose husbands were in the Klan, but they were worried because of the, 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 the hatred um, of their, of their husbands that this hatred would be passed on to their children. And they wanted an intervention from somewhere. And, uh, and, they, and they asked Loretta to come. And she described what it was like to meet with these very rural people from this very um, racist subculture. She said, um, they kept remarking uh, during the time she was meeting with them, like all the time, that how amazed they were at how well-spoken she was for a colored woman. They, um, they kept asking her if she would sing Negro spirituals to them. I mean, their treatment to her could not have been more condescending and, uh, and more disdainful. And you know what she said? But I chose not to lash out, walk out. She said, she literally said, that's the problem with cancel culture that I'm gonna respond with adversity or hostility or unkindness and I'm gonna respond, I'm gonna give double back for what I receive. She said, I just love these women. And I thought of the plight of their living in this um, culture. And my heart broke for them. I just told them my story of what it was like to grow up black in America. And she said, uh, the change in them over a period of time was remarkable. See what I mean? There's a way to respond to rejection and hatred. Um, Jesus shows us the way, doesn't he? A friend of mine's pastor told me of this guy that was converted um, early in his ministry. This, he had a, a student ministry, and this was a high school student, came from the most broken family, abusive family. This guy, drug addiction. He was converted, uh, married a lovely girl, uh, went to work for Youth for Christ nationally, became like one of their leading speakers, had this incredibly fruitful ministry. I mean, he just communicated to kids. When he communicated to kids, kids came to Jesus, kids got the gospel. Um, 
And then the demons of his childhood um, got a hold of him and he fell back into addiction. And that led to promiscuity and that led to the demise of his marriage. And, uh, you know, eventually he repented and got in recovery and he married again. Addiction came again and this just began the cycle of his life. That marriage ended and my, my friend was telling me this story, he said, because he, last year he got diagnosed with cancer. It was terminal. He's just in his 40s. And um, he lost everything. He had no one. He'd alienated everyone. And his first wife took him in. Didn't remarry him. It wasn't a love story. It didn't, uh, um, no, she just took him in. And she took care of him the last six months of his life. It's just beautiful. Having every opportunity to be hateful, spiteful, you deserve it, this is what you get, to respond with love. Now how in the world, because when we say love like Jesus, you can easily respond and say, yeah, right, I'm not Jesus. I'm never gonna be able to do that. You're, You're laying a burden on us that nobody could How do you love like that? Well, clearly you can't love like that until you've experienced that love, right? Until you see yourself as the rejecter of Jesus, right? Until you see your complicity in his death. So we're in Normandy, my wife and I, and we're in the uh, cemetery there where the American soldiers are buried. It's an amazing experience. And as my wife and I were making our way through there, we saw the most unexpected sight. There were two or three German soldiers there. They were dressed in, in, uh, in their uniforms. That's how we knew who they were. And, and of course, it just sort of jumped out to us. How must they feel? How must they feel? Now, they didn't kill these boys. It wasn't their Germany that did it. It was, you know, other generations, right? But there they were, young men, Germans, in a, in a cemetery where everyone lying dead there died at the hand of Germans. How must they feel to be here? In a sense, the cause of this. How they felt is how you should feel when you walk up to get communion today. My body broken for what? For you. You caused this. We caused this. We rebelled against God, right? We are the rebels. We betrayed him. It's us. That's where the love comes from. We've received it. We have experienced this from God. So we give it to others. But if you've never thought of yourself honestly, you think perhaps that you're a real treat for God to love, right? That you're just eminently lovable. Love's costly. Jesus paid it for us. We as his people pay it for others. So last, secondly then, and last, Let's talk about the other cost of love that we read about this morning, the exchange. Love always involves a costly exchange, doesn't it? Um, 
Paul Miller wrote uh, the book Love Walked Among Us. We've kind of been uh, using as a guide as we do this series. And Paul talks about uh, uh, a situation that he faced in his own home with his wife, um, Jill. He says, several years ago, we, we only had three goats and one sheep at the time. The weather forecasters predicted the snowstorm of the century. They were calling for 30 inches of snow over the weekend. They lived in Pennsylvania. Jill was very concerned about the animals in their little wooden sheds. I called the sheep farmer and asked him if the animals would be okay with all this snow. He assured me that as long as they had shelter, they would be fine. I told Jill that seemed to help. I was actually just trying to avoid having them in our bedroom. As a precaution, we put the goats in the garage, but our sheep, Ed, was still outside. So what do you think happens? Snow's falling like crazy. Everything's blanketed outside. Paul uh, Miller and his wife um, slip into their warm bed on the coldest of, uh, of nights. And this, in the darkness comes this voice. Paul, I'm afraid for Ed. Would you go check on Ed? He said he was geared up and ready for this. He said, first of all, um, you know, I have uh, talked to the farmer and he says, Ed's okay. And if that didn't satisfy her, then he had plan two. Plan two was, do you know the insulating properties of snow? Do you know if that shed is covered with snow, how in fact uh, Ed will actually be warmer? I hope Ed doesn't overheat out there. And in fact, um, why don't you trust the science? Um, And um, he said, Third, uh, you know, if that didn't work, he was just going to unleash a fusillade of, uh, of words. And you're obsessed with animals. Your obsession with your animals is, is destroying the culture of our family and our marriage. And, um, but, you know, ultimately he knew what? That if he didn't get up and go, she would. And he would be, and he would feel like the worst heel in the whole world. So this is what happened. I was left with making a choice of who got cold. Either Jill went outside or I did. If I wanted to help Jill, I would have to exchange the warmth of my bed for the coldness of a winter storm. I had to sacrifice my warmth for her worry. I knew the issue wasn't whether the sheep was cold. The issue was Jill's anxiety. For five minutes of pain, I could give Jill eight hours of rest. So I got up, put on my clothes, and checked on Ed. See how love always involves an exchange, right? I will get cold. I will get out of bed and get cold. I will exchange my comfort for my wife's well-being. One of my favorite movies is uh, so violent you shouldn't watch it, but it was called Man on Fire. And uh, Denzel Washington is former CIA, special forces as well. And... um, He's a bodyguard for a a little girl played by Dakota Fanning in in Mexico. And a drug cartel snatches her. And uh, let's just say Denzel Washington begins to apply his very special set of skills to, um, to retrieve this little girl. But the movie ends so poignantly as the little girl is set free by her kidnappers and she runs to her parents, you know, car and and is driven away safely. And Denzel Washington slowly walks over the bridge to the cartel on the other side, giving up his own life as a ransom, right? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to 
what? But to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's always a trade. There's always an exchange. All of love's that way, right? Remember when Jesus goes into the house of Simon the Pharisee and the woman, the prostitute, comes in and makes a big thing over Jesus and she pours the ointment on him and she washes his feet? You see what happens there? There's an exchange. Because everybody in that room looks, uh, has lo- was looking on that woman as vile, but they turn their hatred from the woman to who? To Jesus. How could you let such an immoral woman touch you like that, right? He takes on her shame, her vileness on himself, and then he defends her before the host Simon and says, this woman loved me better than you did. This woman was a better host than you were. Essentially, this woman is closer to the kingdom of God than you are, right? It's a transfer. You see it? It's exchange. It happens all throughout the Bible. When Jesus walks through Jericho, there's a tax collector in a tree. Isn't that funny? The Bible got funny stuff. There's a tax collector in a tree. And, um, and he's the most hated man in town. And so as he's walking through the town, Jesus points up at him and he says what? Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. I'm going to have lunch with you today. Lunch in our culture means nothing. We'll sit down at a counter and eat lunch with uh, anybody, right? Uh, lunch in that culture, to go into someone's house meant there's a covenant, there's a relationship. This is a friendship. We're breaking bread together. Jesus, before the whole town, says the most hated man in the town, I choose him as my friend. And guess what? The town turns on who? Jesus. They turn on Jesus. There's an exchange. The disdain that was Zacchaeus falls on Jesus, right? What about the prodigal son? What happens in the prodigal son story? Jesus' picture of who God is. This boy comes back um, and, 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 uh, and all his sin and shame, having shamed the family and shamed the village. Um, and when he's coming towards the house, Jesus says his father hikes up his garments, exposes his legs and runs to greet that boy. Why does he run to greet the boy with such haste? Because the village would have gone out and stoned that boy for the shame he brought on the village. The father runs to save his life, but to save his life requires what? That he run in his underwear. No Semitic man would do that, humiliate himself, but this is the picture of the God, the love of of a God who would shame himself. This is the exchange of love. You got that? When we love an exchange occurs, when when your wife asks you to vacuum while you're watching the ball game. I mean, come on. What's the exchange, right? She's asking me to give up my free time to give her more free time, right? It's a choice, right? There's an exchange being requested. You know, if you're at a, um, if you're at a party and, uh, and perhaps you went to enjoy yourself, and you're looking forward to hanging out with a couple people there who are the life of the party, right? They're fun. They make you laugh. They have a lot of personality. They're a joy to be with. But you notice there's other people in the party who, who don't, you know, they're more awkward. They're a little more uh, on the outside. They don't have a personality that draws people to them. So an exchange is being asked of you, isn't it? A trade. That you trade some of your fun that you are looking forward to by your drawing near and paying attention to and engaging 
that other person. The party won't be as much fun, right? You're paying a price. You're making, it's the same with church, right? You come to church, you got people you know, people you love, people in your small group, but there's some stranger sat in your pew, right? The nerve. That's where my friend sits. Um, do you know how, do you know how um, uh, unnerving it can be to go to a church that is new to you? It's an exchange. You say, I'm not going to run to my friends. God's brought a guest here. I'm going to look after them. Um, listen, um, that's what love looks like, right? Marriage is an exchange. You know, when people come for marriage counseling, they come with such smiles. And, and I always feel like my job is just to smack that smile right off their face. <laughs> Maybe it's not my job, it's just, there's gotta be some payoff for this job I do. Marriage is a choice to die. It is a choice to take your autonomy and your energy and your gifts and your whatever you got and devote it to the flourishing of another person, right? And that's what parenting is too, right? And when you have children, you've begun to die. Every mother, I mean, think, think of the, ravage, the ravaging of the woman's body, even in the, the, the task of bearing a child, um, it's an exchange. Um, becoming a Christian. I exchange my autonomy to be a part of Jesus' family, the church. So my money is not my money. My time is not my time. My life is not my life. I belong to Jesus, his mission. Who in their right mind goes to the, goes to the Congo, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, to live in Goma when you could live in the United States? Well, the person who's exchanging their comfort, their vision, the American vision of prosperity, they're exchanging it for Jesus. So what's the ultimate exchange? What's the ultimate exchange? Jesus dies on a holiday. What holiday? What was the Last Supper? It was a, it was Passover. It was Passover. That wasn't an accident, was it? What happened at Passover? The firstborn son is supposed to die in Egypt. All the Egyptian firstborn, all the Israelite firstborn are owed to God for their sin and rebellion. But God says to his people, you take, the first, you take a lamb without spot or blemish, you kill the lamb, and the lamb will be exchanged for the son. Jesus, it's Passover in Jerusalem. The lambs are being um, flooded into the temple. The Jewish people understood um, the exchange. The blood has to be spilt for the forgiveness of sins, right? The Jewish people understood that. Do you understand that? How do you get rid of Nazism? What happened on that beach in Normandy? Blood had to be spilt, right? How did slavery get chased uh, into uh, uh, the depths of history in our country, blood had to be spilt. You can go to those battlefields and those cemeteries too, right? 
Lincoln said, in fact, that every drop of blood drawn by the lash of slavery would now, God would ask for the blood of the soldier to be spilt, to pay for it. So Jesus, when John the Baptist saw him, what did John the Baptist say when he first saw Jesus? Behold what? It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's the Passover Lamb. Only in this case, what happens? The firstborn son dies, right? The firstborn son is the Lamb, the only Son of God. It's the exchange. It's the great exchange. Jesus um, sheds his blood instead of us. Corey Ten Boom um, was part of a Dutch family who hid, uh, they were Christians, but they hid the Jews from the Nazis. But they were um, ratted out and uh, arrested. They were sent to Ravensbrück. She and her sister Betsy she, put, she wrote in her um, story, I had read a thousand times the story of Jesus' arrest, how soldiers slapped him, laughed at him, flogged him. Now such happenings had faces and voices. So as she you know, experienced the Nazi soldiers brutalizing them in, in the concentration camp, she was remembering Jesus' suffering. She said, we faced the recurrent humiliation of medical inspection. Naked, we had to maintain our erect hands at, at, at sides position as we slowly passed the grinning guards. It was on one of those mornings while we were waiting, shivering in the quarter, that yet another page in the Bible leapt into life for me. He hung naked on the cross. I had not known. I had not thought, she said. The paintings, the carved crucifix showed at least a scrap of cloth but this I suddenly knew was the respect and reverence of the artist. But oh, at the cross, there had been no reverence. No more than I saw in the faces of the Nazi guards. I leaned toward Betsy, ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blade stood out sharp and thin beneath her blue mottled skin. Betsy, they took Jesus' clothes too. And ahead of me, I heard a little gasp. Oh, Corey. I never thanked him. I never knew that. I never thought about that. So there they were in a concentration camp being paraded naked to their death, essentially. And they remembered Jesus too. Jesus went through this too. He paid the price, right? The awful price. Only he could pay it, and he did. Do you know what Hebrews says? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He did it with joy. So what are you gonna do with Jesus? I'm gonna tell you what you ought to do. Follow him. Become a follower. I'm not talking someday, I'm talking today. I'm talking right now. If God by his Holy Spirit is drawing you, then follow him. Why? Because he's God. 
and he says, follow me. When he walks by Matthew, the tax collector, he says, follow me. It's not an invitation, it's a command, follow me. When he walked up by, by um, um, Peter and Andrew, he said, follow me. They dropped their nets, they followed. You drop your nets, you follow. Why? Because you know that there's gotta be more to life than living for yourself. And why should you follow him? Because in your heart of hearts, you want to. Because in your heart of hearts, you know that nobody will ever love you like your soul longs to be loved, but Jesus. Why would you follow him? Because you'd be crazy not to. There's nobody like him. Bow your heads, would you? I'm gonna give you a chance to pray if you're ready to do that. If you're not ready to do that, you know, God will be patient with you. But if you're ready, you, you might pray just like this. Father, I've lived in your world, but I have tried to live without you. I've tried to make life about me, and uh, it really hasn't worked. I'm more empty than anybody knows. So in this room this day, I say yes. I wanna be your disciple. Thank you for being the lamb. The lamb that dies instead of me. Thank you. Thank you for paying the cost of love. Even though I rejected you, you didn't reject me. You brought me to this place this day to hear this word. And I say yes. To your love I say, Jesus, I love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.